what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, Mm. brothers or something like that. And have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best. Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies or shepherds. Yep. So if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get Mm. a German shepherd or a Dutch shepherd from is House Hamburg shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All right. So now that we've got the dogs, what's the next part of the evolution? Well, the good news is Mm -hmm. they- they can send those shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So what about we get one sent here to Australia? Right. You'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs. Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear, all your dog training needs, because mm-hmm. we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs yep. will be met by Einswick Dog Quip. Oh, the buffet himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars, all that training stuff. devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah. You'll be able yep. to get that from Einswick because yep. you're going to be here in Australia. Well, that means that you have to go up north, further north yep. in, in North America yep. and go and see old mate, Mach Le Point. Yep. And get everything from Canine everything. Dynamics. Oh, Canine Dynamics. Yep. Yep. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah, I can get that from Canon Dynamics. Yep. From in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benware. Yeah, so I'm actually going to get my dog. Tra- I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to get a play and train mm-hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia Ashland. as well. Ashland, Ashland Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So everything both there is. Yeah. Uh, I can be either one of those mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home, train that dog. Well, you're sipping- Cafe lattes. Just, just, just gallivanting yeah. all over gallivanting. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm at my house. Glenn's in the studio. How are you, sir? I'm good, sir. How are you? I'm pretty good. Busy week for both of us. We uh, didn't get the time to actually do this in person. No. So here we are right at the end of the week on actual release day doing <laughs> doing the podcast <laughs> by correspondence. Yeah. I've already got two messages. Why isn't there an episode out today? Yeah. I've had likewise. Mm. And it's usually people in America saying, oh, I've got things that I wanted to do this weekend and I was hoping to listen to the podcast, which is really nice, but things happen as well on this end. Before we actually kick off the show officially to announce the topic and then work our way through it, there's a couple of things I wanted to say. 
first and foremost, I've had a lot more than usual feedback on the episode we did in regards to vets giving training advice. I didn't know what to expect when we put that episode out. I knew that there was probably a little controversial conversation that was happening now. I don't think there was anything mean-spirited or anything that was untowards that was mentioned. That was reflective in the feedback that I got as well. And one of the highlights that I will discuss about that is several actual working vets contacted me that listened to the show actively and regularly and had nothing but glowing praise to give, which was really nice. The other part that I think was really noteworthy was several people had commented on it. Both these vets had talked about times where they had considered suicide as well based on the, yeah, exactly. Based on the conversations they've had with clients and the high level of bullying and a lot of the pressure of just being in business and the emotional side of it. It was quite an honor to be involved in those conversations and share in the vulnerability of people that have been in those specific situations. And I think that you and I made an important footnote in that episode that if you've got a good vet and they're doing a good job, please tell them please share with them how important they are to you and how much they mean to you. Because for a lot of these vets, it's definitely not all about the money. They're not running off to the bank like people assume they are just because there's high rates in trying to rescue the pet that you've got. And yes, we know and understand it's a very emotional situation, but you've got to understand sometimes too that some of these vets, there's extraordinary bills that you've got to pay. For example, running these pet resorts, I know for a great example that sometimes people said, oh, you guys must be making huge bank, otherwise you wouldn't be getting other resorts. That's not entirely true. There is a huge, huge financial debt, and especially when you're involved in borrowing and so forth, it's a different story when you own the land and you own the business and the business is profiting and doing very well. That's not to say people don't make money in doing business. I mean, you wouldn't do it for not making money, but there are considerable fees and charges that have to be paid. And it's the same thing when you really break things down. So sometimes during our shows, we've encouraged people to look deeper into subject matter before they make comment on it, before you have a quick assumption that that's just how it is. And hand on heart, I've been guilty of that myself. I've said that often in the show, but it is important to sometimes put the brakes on, have a little think about that, consider that these people are under a lot of duress at times. I think that sort of kicked me in the feels a little bit, having a a quick conversation with these people. I asked them if they would consider coming on air and talking about it, but they didn't feel that professionally that would be a good idea. They just said there's a lot of stigma about discussing that in the industry and they're happy to share it offline, but not on the podcast. So I did say that, you know, like I'd be thanking them and putting it out there that if two people were thinking it of just a small amount of people that contacted me, imagine that on a much broader scale. And that really sort of put shivers up my spine. Mm. Yeah. I was quite stressed about that episode just because I wasn't a hundred percent sure that we had conveyed our intent as well as needed to be. But I I guess evidently we did because that I got similar feedback. Mm. And in fact, we got an email from a vet that uh, we're in the back and forth with at the moment, trying to get on the show, a specialist in a reproductive vet that will be, I think, aside from confirming some of the things that we said about, you know, desexing, not changing dogs behaviorally very much and that sort of stuff. But I think that would be a fascinating conversation. I can think of heaps of questions I have for a reproductive specialist vet. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's hopefully coming in the near future. We're just uh, doing the emails back and forth, trying to organize a time. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that will be a fantastic episode. Certainly love to have that person contribute if they want to reach out to us and join the show. Speaking of feedback from shows, did you have more to say on that? No, I was just going to say I'm not going to gloss over that whole point about the vets and the suicide. I think that's quite significant. To be honest, I think we discussed that and did that quite a lot of justice in the other show. Have a listen into that if you haven't heard that episode before, because I think that's really worth honouring the people in the industry. But yes, there has been other feedback from our last show that we just did. (laughs) Yeah. That's the most feedback I've ever gotten on a show from the last one. And it was really, really broad. I had a lot of people say, hey, man, that was really good from all aspects of the industry. Say, hey, that was really good. Really appreciate it. Thought you spilled a lot of truth. I had a lot of other people call me a fuckwit and say I didn't know what I was talking about. (laughs) So (laughs) a broad spectrum. I think it was evident to me when we decided, yeah, we said in the start of that episode, we wanted to talk about punishment and goods and bads and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And still yet there's people saying, oh, you know, if a dog doesn't do this, like you, it's a lack of motivation. You need to up the positive reinforcement, stuff like that. And we're like, yeah, we have 200 episodes explaining that. And we said at the start, this is where we want to talk about punishment and when it's appropriate. But I think it just, you know, it, it it's a, a polarizing topic. As certainly I found out during the week with many, many, many messages about it. And for the most part, like there was a lot of feedback that I just didn't get back to people on because some of it was pretty unkind to me, but also just, I don't think people, like it was questions that were answered in the show and the parameters under which we would do those things were explained and people just didn't want to hear that, I think in some cases, but you know, what can you do? That's life. But you put information out there, people have their right to reply to it. I think any time that you do mention or want to discuss the topics or the terms around punishment, it's always going to trigger. I'm not saying that to defend the episode and saying what we said was 100% legitimate and right. I feel that we conveyed it well. Other people that have also provided feedback to me, which I got a few of as well, some didn't feel that we did it justice. Some said we misrepresented it, especially in relation to the plus R communities and so forth. But I feel that towards the start of the show that you did a caveat and suggested that there was a section that didn't relate to them if they weren't going to do it this way. I'm pretty sure if I recall that section of the whole episode that you went back and said, if you're not doing this, this doesn't apply to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> moving on, yeah. <laughs> there is one other thing I wanted to say, which was separate to the episodes that we've put on. At work during the week, we had one of our longest-term staff members, a girl called Olivia, finally put in her resignation. It wasn't for anything bad. It was that she's been with us for 12 years, so she's actually been here a year longer than I have been in the company. She's always worked in our dual resort and has been a range of everything from kennel attendant, kennel supervisor, to working in daycare and helping in reception and everything. It's not often that I want to highlight any one person in specific because there's a lot of great people that have worked in the organization and there still is a lot of great people that work in the organization. But I just want to highlight to everybody that when you get somebody who's exceptional and special, again, you know, like I'm talking about the conversation I had with vets before, how important it is to actually let them know that they're amazing and that you really value them. And I like to feel that we do that with a lot of our great employees. But Olivia was, she was just that cherry on the top, if that makes sense. I'm actually incredibly heartbroken, but at the same time, I'm very proud of her and I'm also really happy for her that she's doing this big move because she's met a partner. 
it's up past Dubbo where she's going to live. So obviously that was why she had to resign from the job and move on. She's happy and I'm happy for her and I'm just, I know what conflict is and I'm in total conflict about this because I'm really absolutely torn in heart. Like my heart's broken that she's gone and she's special to me. She's like family. I just adore her. She's such a special person and there's so many wonderful qualities about her and this is why I wanted to highlight when you get these amazing people because sometimes I look at Olivia and I think you really emphasize what's great about people. I often think that people like Olivia are the best of us. She was so kind, so considerate, such a lovely human being in so many ways. I'm envious of her attributes to be such a wonderful person. She never complained. She didn't get involved in nasty, malicious gossip and so forth. She was very honest with me when I asked her questions about things. I feel that it's important that these sort of conversations never go to the grave. If you've got great people that you highlight them and you just I guess I'm babbling a bit now. I'm, I'm, as I said, it's a little. I'm a little bit um, torn up. Remy will miss her, that's for sure. Yes, he will. He loves her. Yeah, we all love her. She's just amazing. And I guess to finish this, I, I just want to say thank you so much, Olivia. I know we conveyed it to you at your send-off, and if you are listening to this or any of the staff that work here are listening to this, just know that I wish you the, the happiest life. I hope we stay in contact, which I'm sure we will, and I just hope everything works out for you. I've got a topic, mm-hmm. something I've noticed since I just got back from the States. And I noticed this every time that we work with, you know, like every time say Sean and Janet would come out and every time I travel around or, you know, it's been a long time since there's been any seminars at your place and, you know, new fresh eyes trainers coming in. But I've noticed since I got back from the States that I'm super energized about training again, right? Like at the PSA club. And one of the things I find is, you know, that outside influence that not only brings new energy and excitement to your own training, but also can kind of highlight, you know, little errors that you might've been making along the way. So I thought one of the things that certainly happened with us and happens with my training and therefore the club is that I get into sort of building a dog up decoy mode. I get into the technical side of it. I'm not great at putting heaps of heat onto dogs. I'm not great at driving dogs. I, you know, my body's wrecked. Mm-hmm. So in in terms of like where my skill sets lie as a decoy, it's in that development side, right? And being technical and teaching the dog how to win and all that kind of stuff, not so much the big drives and all that kind of thing. And so while we as a club adequately prepare dogs and we do pretty well, where we kind of fall over a little bit is that we get them very technically proficient. And then when the, the, you know, bigger drives and more pressure comes in, it's not that the dogs aren't prepared to deal with that level of pressure. In fact, we've prepared them very well to deal with it and to defeat it. Our issue is that maybe we then have some outing problems. And certainly when we first started in PSA, that's like the first couple of trials, that was the issues that we had with people who would have done really well otherwise. And that was probably my fault because we didn't prepare the dogs for that level of intensity, that type of drive channeling to come back from such a high level of, you know, the drive, right? To bring them into defense while they're being driven and then to channel them back into calmer state of mind where they actually can out from. So that's something that I've kind of noticed with our training in the club, that I, whenever I go and train with other people am kind of reminded, oh, I've got to remember to bring more heat to the dogs more regularly because my own 
state is to not do that, right? I'm more, I'm more focused on the development and I need to remember that, you know, when the dog is done, when it's developed, that you've got to regularly bring it to that very high level of arousal in order to, you know, practice and maintain control over that very high level of arousal. Anyway, so I've just been thinking about that a little bit because, you know, you, you train with other people who are as good and better than you. And there's no point in doing that if you're just going to go, oh, that's nice. Right? <laughs> the whole point is to then go, oh, what can I draw from this? What can I take from this? And I thought it would be good to talk about times when we've done exactly that, like the view from the outside in when somebody else comes into your training and goes, just does things differently. Or when you go to somebody else's training and they're doing things differently, how to reconcile that what you're doing is right and what they are doing is right. And even though they can be very different, they can have varying degrees of rightness. Yeah. I think that's a very important observation to make. I know I sound like a broken record saying that we've talked about it in another episode, but these sort of conversations do come up regularly. And I think for important reasons as well, because I do recall in the very early days, uh, again, you know, of ADT when we were experimenting a lot with similar concepts of exactly what you're talking about. One of the things that I do really appreciate that Boyd encouraged us to do was see what other people are doing see what works best and then try and bring it back and introduce it to the club and see if it plugs in to what we're already doing. Because I do remember there was a time where we were really, really focused on the out and we spent a long time really wanting to make sure that when we told dogs to out, we were doing it. But if I draw back to those days, it was more based around the compulsive out rather than a classical sort of out. Because the dogs were anticipating this, you'd start to see a shift in their grip. For most people who are developing biting dogs, I know we're going off on a tangent now and talking about the, the bite sports again and getting people hopefully invested in being bite sports curious. But <laughs> or at least buying our shirts. <laughs> yeah. But when you start talking about grip development, grip development's really important to decoys, handlers, the genetics of the dogs and so forth. And it's something that we really measure the success on dogs in, especially in the sports or especially in well, let's just drop sports for a minute. It's very important in law enforcement because you want to make sure that when your dog is doing an apprehension that it actually does have the assailant and is hanging on and not doing multiple bites throughout the body and then you're going to court and then the court saying, well, that looks like excessive force to me because the dog has let go and regripped several times around the body. So there are a lot of reasons why we want to develop strong and very deep grips with the dog. So what we did notice earlier on is that because the dogs were anticipating and sort of getting into a stress model that they were starting to shift their grips, like their grips were coming in and out and the dogs, you could almost see when the handler was approaching, the dogs were becoming a little nervous about it, like thinking, oh, here it comes, you know, like if I don't let go, there's going to be trouble and if I do let go, I don't know what's going to happen then and you could see, I talked about conflict with Olivia before, you could see in the mind of the dogs that they were actually in conflict about their situation. Like, I want to hang on, but I, I don't want to get in trouble. But if I do let go, I'm not sure if I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to get reinforced. And if I do let go, am I vulnerable to the situation? And I know I'm doing a lot of thinking for the dog, which is important because in those sort of situations, because we're prefabbing what we want, we do have to do a lot of the thinking in that situation and try and get inside the dog's head and think about what it wants and how it feels, more importantly, how it feels in that sort of situation. Identifying that was very important for us because we started to realize that that was spreading almost like a virus from trainer to trainer. 
that although the dogs were originally gripping well, we started to see that there was a problem in the grip. And I think that it was because we were too intent on doing too many outs. And because we were focusing on law enforcement, there wasn't enough wins with the sleeve. Like we kind of thought if you give the dog a win, that's a problem. And, you know, like that's a sports orientated thing. But as I started to go around and work with a lot of the Schutzen clubs and so forth, I realized that that was really one of the only ways to cure it. One of the ways was to let the dog win the sleeve you know, and parade it round, and which we did. We did do that. I'm not saying we never did that, but, we, you know, like the focus started to shift on making sure that we demanded an out and we got it at all costs. And it did come at cost. It came at shitty grip development. Once mm-hmm. we sort of transformed that and started to, and this is when we do talk about variability in the training and varying between sometimes outing and sometimes winning and making sure the dog was you know, this is not rocket science sort of stuff. This is sort of stuff that we've stitched in all throughout conversations with great trainers every time we've interviewed them on shows, but it was showing the dog what the correct picture was and how the dog is advantageous to it. Like there's a good saying that I love Mm -hmm. and I implement this into not only dog training, but also workplace strategy. And that is what's the game and how do I win it? And I think it's important for any trainer who's worth their salt or any human being that's involved in training across the spectrums of training to make it clear to the student that's what the the whole concept is. What's the game and how do I win? Once we started to establish that mindset with the dogs, and that was by having outside influences, that was by having second sets of eyes and having other people saying it's happening because you're doing this or it's happening because you're not doing this. And we've talked about the importance of not allowing ego to get tangled up into your career or your training manifesto. And I think that's one of the issues that sometimes happens when you get in the club, but that's not always the case. As you stipulated before, sometimes it's just that you build your own unintentional echo chamber as well. And that's one of those areas where you yeah. do have to be a little mindful. Yeah. I think that's what's tricky, whether people carry the title or not, the training director, right? So I do the, my like inverted commas, the training director of any club or group of people or whatever carries this huge responsibility to oversee the training of everybody, right? And if you are, if you're just a group of Jonos having fun, well, cool, right? Like that's fine. But if you're working towards a sport, especially I think this is so difficult and stressful in, you know, multidiscipline clubs, you know, you get like, it's not so common in Australia because of all the political problems, but you know, other places around the world and a little bit in Australia, you do get crossover clubs where there's some people want to do PSA, some people want to do French ring, some people want to do Mondio. And if we're the only people interested in bite sports within a hundred miles of each other, then we get together and we do our own, you know, we compete, we work towards our own sports, but we do it together. And I think especially if you're sort of the lead or the most experienced or the training director of those people, it can be really stressful to know are you steering these people in the right direction? Mm. And I think sometimes, you know, we see it, it's a behavioral thing that we see, we observe it in dogs, the same sort of thing where if you are not so secure in your ability or confident in your ability, that can really quickly come across as like a snarky, you know, it, it becomes as that ego driven you start to compensate and people start to make big claims and they don't want outside influences because it can it can expose that they're not training as well as as they perhaps should be and so i think that's something that as a training director or the lead trainer of a group or whatever it's that constant bringing in of people so 
you never find yourself in a position where you are saying like, I'm the best, I'm the one, I have all the answers. And for me, like to say that would be so stressful because you just don't have all the answers. Like nobody has all the answers, especially in the surprise scenario games. And one of the things you see is, you know, there's so many ways to do dog training. And I say have been at a facility teaching a seminar or something, and I'll say, this is how to do things. And you can see the staff at that facility give me this uncomfortable look. Right? And I know, I know the look, that look means that's different from how we do it here. And we like the person employing you is the boss and he doesn't agree with what you're saying. And it's where I then sort of have this conversation where I'm like, Hey, that's fine. Like, that's totally fine. It, like, just because I'm saying this is right, doesn't mean that anything else is wrong. And in fact, maybe I'm wrong. Like it's totally possible that given the, given the totality of the knowledge and the, the understanding and the, the scenario that you guys are actually in, which I don't have all that information because I get a snapshot. I get to see what I see today. I could be totally wrong, right? And I think that it's up to you then, with me being the outside person, it's up to those people then to then say, okay, well, like, we'll take all of this in. We don't argue it now. We could discuss it and we can, you know, discuss pros and cons and all that kind of stuff. But our job now is to take all of that in and then see where we can fit any of it, if any, into our training regime. But for me, like as that training director, I'm the opposite of that person that doesn't want outside influences and is off put by conflicting information. Like I want it all because I find it really stressful. I find it really stressful preparing people for trial because, you know, I know what works for me. I coach lots of people to do this. I do it online. I do it you know, with lots of people all around the world, but it still is you're making a, a snap judgment of what you see in that moment and how to best prepare them for whatever they're doing. You're going off of I go off of the experiences that I have had and have and put that over a template of what I see with them and come up with the best course of action forward. But I absolutely am interested in anything anybody else has to say in that space because like, I can't always be right. There's no way that I'm always right. And that has been made so definitely clear to me by when people come into our club that are really, really good at the game or, you know, are training with us in the week up to then judging us on on that following weekend and uh, training differently. And then you go like, oh, we, like, we have to change something here because we've never done that before. You're making it clear that this is an important part of the sport and we have considered that a, a small part of the sport. It's a big part of your training and we've made it a small part of our training. Not that we've overlooked it completely, but it's stressful. And I think that getting those outside eyes looking in is so very, very important. That reminds me of a different conversation that I had with a colleague some time ago. It was in relation to, let's say, for example, you're in Australia like we are. Sometimes you get different cultures that come into the country and they misbehave when they're here. And if that's your only view on the culture, then you have a very, very limited view on what that is. Because I was speaking with a colleague about that some time ago, and they said to me, the only way that you can truly establish the beauty of other cultures is when you travel, when you go outside and when you see how that culture evolves and how they think and how they live and how they eat and how they function as families and how they function as an economy when you're inside their own country and you're a pilgrim backpacking around the world, meeting all these different people and and seeing what life is like outside your country in, in different countries. And they said, only then can you really truly 
appreciate what it is to be a person of that culture and what their culture is all about. And I find the same thing very much in dog training as well, because you get very comfortable when you're in your own little group sometimes. You know, you're with the same group of people and you get a lot of yes people that are saying, yes, that sounds good. You must know what you're talking about. You're the head potato, so this looks good and I'm happy just to nod my head and agree with you so we don't have a conflict issue either. And to be honest, I don't know any better, so that sounds great. However, as you pointed out, when, yeah. you, when you do have expertise come in from other places, It's wonderful to see, and again, we were talking about vulnerability before, it's wonderful to see vulnerability in people where they just step aside and say, hey, we've got this guest here tonight, they're going to show us some things, we might be integrating them, and we might not be. That's a great conversation to have with your team, because that never makes you look small. That was something I struggled with when I was a younger man, thinking of things like that, because I used to think, well, that will make me small, and that will take power away from me. But it kind of empowers you. It's not about you. I make the mistake of making it think about that sometimes. It's not about you. It's about the greater good. I think the more that you drop that whole persona of thinking about it's about you, it's about how you look, that was probably one of the areas of weakness that you established because you kind of got to think it's for the greater good. And then when it does come back to you, when it does focus back on you again, I generally think that people look at you in a different light and saying, you were wise to bring us all of this opportunity. You made this happen for us. It's less about you as your ego, but it's the appreciation of the group, which I I guess is still an ego thing, but it really is nice to see when you do open up opportunity and you do open up possibility. I think that was the word that I was looking for, possibility and potential to increase in other areas that you hadn't considered before. Because when I've been a part of those type of structures or systems, I have appreciated the people that have made it possible for me to meet other people and to see what they're doing and how they're doing it. And I know that that still involves a lot of hard work and the individuals or the collectives who made that happen, you know, there was a lot of negotiation. There was a lot of collaboration on getting that to happen. So that wouldn't have happened without them. So I know that I I don't look at it like, oh, this person's a new wizard and now I've got a new oracle and a new mentor and I don't have to follow my current mentor because now I've got somebody else I can chase after. I think to myself, you know, now I've got access to a lot more information, but my mentor made that happen. While I'm learning, my mentor's also learning. So it's a great thing. It's a little different. It's a little different, but it reminds me of a movie called Mr. Holland's Opus with Richard Dreyfus. It's an older movie, but it's a beautiful movie of somebody who is celebrated and, and loved as a music teacher, you know, bringing the culture of music and helping people reach their best potential. What's really beautiful about the whole movie is that the character that Richard Dreyfus plays, Mr. Holland, you know, he's just a school music teacher, but he celebrated in such a way and he didn't realize he was so loved and appreciated by generations of all these students and it's just a it's a really touching kind of movie and I've seen that appreciation for others in the training industry over years and also had been able to share in a little bit of that myself and it's a lovely experience it's quite humbling Mm. I'm a pretty open person I, I work really hard on not carrying a lot of ego but I'll admit It is difficult when you have someone, and and like I said, I just spoke about how important I think this is and how I actively seek it out. I try to get people to review, you know, my own training and I do this for other people quite a lot, but it is a bit of a kick in the dick when (laughs) someone points out a huge flaw and especially when it's not with your own dog, like with your own dog, you know, it's rare that someone says to me, Hey, you're doing this and that's, 
you know, you're setting down a path or you've overlooked something. Like it's rare that that be because, you know, I spent a lot of time analyzing my own training, that kind of stuff. But especially when someone comes to the club or someone has a look at somebody else that I'm mentoring or that I'm training or whatever, and they see something that either I haven't seen or that they, you know, realize an importance in something that I didn't realize an importance in and that I was going to let, you know, grow and fester and become a bigger problem later on in their training, that kind of stuff. And it, it is exactly as you know, that word conflict comes up again. I, I get really conflicted because I'm on the one hand, I'm like, oh, I'm so happy. This is why you're here, right? Like this is totally the reason that we have you in here. We've got new information that's actionable and we can use it and and, and it's going to help us and we're going to go forward. And I understand what you're saying and I know the steps forward. We, we, we're not relying on you. Like, thank you very much. We've done exactly what you wanted. But then there's also, yeah, there is that feeling of like, now I look like shit. <laughs> like, like, there is that feeling. And no matter how much, no matter how much you want to build for me anyway, no matter how much I want to only have the feelings of, thank God we did this. Thank God that we got someone in. Um, I'm happy to have this information. There is that uncomfortableness in receiving it, right? Like that, that's there. And I think, you know, that's part of development for me anyway like i just know that 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 sort of uncomfortable feeling of sitting there when you know you're the expert and you just get out experted by somebody in front of the people who consider you an expert it's a difficult thing to reconcile right and then what you sometimes find you know certainly when i've done this for other people is you can then find it can go kind of go two ways like people can sometimes then be like oh cool get it on board and they recover from the minor insult that they feel like they were slighted against or sometimes they can buck the information and try and prove you're wrong and you know really really prove you right in doing that and I hope that I've never done that I don't know that I have but I really hope that I have it because I think that the people that do it probably do it subconsciously as well. Uh, I doubt that too many people are like, fuck that guy. Cause if they've, if they're the kind of person that brings someone in to accelerate training, whatever, it's unlikely that they're going to make the conscious decision. Fuck that guy. We're not doing what he said. We're going to do the opposite. But sometimes you see that happen. And then that's what gives me cause for alarm when I'm like, Oh God, I hope I'm not doing that. I hope I'm not subconsciously doing that because my guess is that what they're doing it subconsciously. I don't know. I don't know. It's a good observation because that does happen from time to time and it depends on your relationship with that person. Sometimes it <laughs> it does bruise the ego a little bit when you get outshined and, you know, somebody comes in and just does this amazing job and it seems to tear away all the problems that you've been having at the club at the last couple of months. You know, like finally they came mm-hmm. in and it's like they developed this knowledge bomb and all of a sudden it just evaporates everything and you go, fuck, like why did I miss that? It's so obvious. But sometimes you can be so close to the problem you can't see it. And it's not that mm-hmm. – yeah, it's not that you don't know it. It's not that you're you're lacking the possession of, of the knowledge of how to do it. It's just sometimes that you get fixated on a specific way of doing things and then you get you, you yeah. kind of get in a bit of a barrel roll after a period of time where you think, oh, all these problems are nails and I've got the hammer and this is the way to solve it. And yeah. then somebody comes in with a pair of pliers and say, well, you can also pull that hammer with pliers. You know, like you don't have to use uh-huh. the hammer all the time. That's happened to me before several times, and I can think of many times in history where, you know, like I've sabotaged situations because I thought that's not going to be, that's not going to bode well for me. You know, like I'm not going to look good if this person can come in and and outshine me. And it's not because I'm thinking, 
I'm not thinking big at that point in time. I'm thinking small. Not only have I missed an important learning opportunity, but I've also limited students on doing the same thing, which is something that I, Mm. you know, like I really tried not to do. Fundamentally, it's why we've, over the years, we've tried to host so many seminars here and I've encouraged all my trainers and any of my important staff members to go to it because I kind of think, you know, like I don't want you just to come to me and say, hey, what's the answer? And then I give you some bullshit recourse when truly, you know, the master of that example can be brought in and as a third party and they can explain it well. And then we can sit down as a group and say, oh, there you go. There's the answer. I think this is an important strategy to implementing this into our new program or at least considering it if we're seeing an exhibit of the problems that we were having with the dogs rather than just banging our head against the wall and thinking there's no answer to it. Speaking of, while we're talking of all of this, it's quite exciting that October next year in 2022, we're bringing Cameron Ford out, which I'm very excited about. So he will be doing a couple of presentations and speeches, one with Red Team, who are sponsoring his visit out here. But uh, he will also at some stage be coming out to Dural to do a weekend event on scent detection. So really looking forward to that. Cam's one of the greats. You and I both listen to his podcast. He's been on the show several times. Talking Sense is the podcast. And sometimes when people talk to me about scent detection, which I have quite a few conversations with various different people, there's been something that Cameron's explained way better than I could. So I just say this episode, Talking Sense, listen to this, and I think it will answer all the questions that you've just been firing at me. I think he would serve you better justice listening. It's not because I'm lazy and I just don't feel like answering it. It's just that somebody's just done a great job of explaining it. And I think, well, rather than fumble through that like a circus clown, I'd rather just take him straight to the source. Listen to this. I think you'll get a lot of relief from getting it from a master trainer. Yeah. High level experts like that are an easy referral, right? Like, especially it's one of the things like Cam's obviously great. I'm excited that he's coming out. We're all speaking at that conference and spot on, like you say, you know, you get a lot of people into do seminars at your place. And, but one of the things that I think is really interesting, and it's not just in Australia, it's worldwide. The guys on working dog radio call it, I think they call it the 50 mile rule where anybody who's from more than 50 miles away is automatically correct. (laughs) So like, you know, along the same lines, I've been places teaching and, you know, I'll say something and everybody in the, in the room goes, Oh yes, that's correct. Like, geez, why didn't we think of that? And I look at the person that's hosting or the training director or whatever, pulling their hair out going, I fucking told you that last week. <laughs> like, like this is, I told you this, we, we do that. Like they might've used a slightly different word or whatever, but there's that idea that the external is the expert, right? And sometimes they totally are, you know? And I think the idea is more than anything, it's fresh eyes. Like mm. people want fresh information and it could be the same information but delivered by a fresh person or there's so many different sort of angles that we can come from with it all but i think it really highlights the necessity of your know, multiple interactions on the same problem like and not getting that focus lock on solving you know being correct all the time and always being the one that solves the problems i've especially had problems referring out for behavior cases that i don't enjoy that's one of the things that i've gotten much better at now is like not letting this is certainly is an ego trap problem where 
it's the kind of case that I don't either have like the right time for, or I'm not in the right mind frame for, especially when I was doing a lot of aggression stuff. And a few years ago, when I started to have the opportunity to do a lot more of the training that I wanted to do, like training dogs to do stuff and training sport dogs and police dogs and coaching people to do the same. There was a transition period where I was still doing a lot of in-home behavior mod, dealing with a lot of aggression cases. Right. And it started to be that I had less time for that kind of stuff, but I did find it difficult to refer out because there's an ego component of, well, I know what I'm doing here. Like I'm good at it, right? Like I'm, I'm good at this and I know what I'm doing. And even though I wasn't enjoying it and I didn't really want to continue doing it, I still had this sort of, I don't know, kind of weird hang up around handing that over to someone else. <laughs> and especially when they were, long-standing clients and, and I did it like it's not like I refused to do it or anything but I just had this odd feeling in my gut about it like I was like it felt kind of like giving up you know like you know some dogs that are never gonna be uh, what the owners want they're never gonna be an easy dog so they're an ongoing case forever they need a session every two weeks or a month or six months whatever they just need like some FaceTime interaction with a trainer. And I had lots of those on the go or not lots, but enough that it was a problem that I, you know, handing those over to someone else is bringing in an expert and it is getting new advice. But then there's that uncomfortable part where I know what I'm doing and, and what I do works. But then when you bring in someone else and you do a bit of a handover session and you say to the person, Hey, this is the new trainer. They're going to be helping you from now on. And they're like, Oh, show me what you've been doing. And, and you can see that look like, Oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. <laughs> and then that was what gave me that kind of feeling where it's like, oh, but you might get more success than me, right? Like, you know that, like you might fix this problem quicker than me and make me look bad in the eyes of this person. And I don't think any of that ever happened. I don't think it did, but it was, it's just something that I really observed in myself about that state of conflict between I'm happy to hand this over. And in other instances, I'm happy to get new eyes on my training or my club's training or people I'm training with it. And that means we're going to progress, but there is kind of a weird trepidation around the fact that this is different from what I chose to do. Therefore it exposes a hole in my skill set. It's really amusing listening to you saying that because it conjured up a lot of thoughts uh, of yesteryear, you know, stupidity. And I've done exactly that, exactly what you were talking about before, where I knew in my heart and soul that I was the perfect person for the job, but I didn't want to do the job. But the thought of giving it to somebody else was almost unbearable you know, that's, a, that's, that's an ego problem because you're right. You know, sometimes you're thinking, if I give this to somebody else, they're either, A, they're going to fuck it up, which you don't know. You're assuming you're going through all these hypotheticals yeah. in your mind or they're going to do a great job and that person's going to say, why did I slum it with this fuck for such a long period of time? You know, and now I'm with this person yeah. who's just taken me the whole next level. It happens sometimes. But at the same token, if you're in that situation where you're either A, you're not enjoying it or B, that you're burned out or whatever reason it is, the right thing to do is find somebody suitable for the job. And whatever kudos comes yeah. after that with the person getting the results, they deserve it. They're the ones in the yard doing the hard work. So kudos to them. Yeah. I think it's just a difficult internal feeling to battle with. And I think that feeling from the past, especially in those instances of handing over those kind of cases and then seeing people do slightly different things. And, and you know, the owners of the dogs probably don't even notice anything's different, right? Like to them, they're only taking in the surface level stuff anyway. And what me and the other trainer might've been doing differently might've been, 
you know, such minute and detailed things that the average person is never going to pick up on it anyway. Mm. But I think that those feelings for me has shaped the way that I deliver information and work with people into now because, you know, it's like we discussed a few episodes ago, like I try to always leave space in my language to be wrong. Like I need for in, in the face of new information, I need to be a, to be able to change my opinion and not look as though I'm a flip flopper, you know, because I think you know, sometimes that's what can keep us hard lined in a decision and in a technique with the dog that maybe isn't the best thing for the dog. When you've said this is guaranteed 100% the thing to do. And then you get a new piece of information and you're like, Oh fuck, it's not anymore. But I said, I said with such conviction that it was. So you're like, well, I have to ride this into the ground, right? Like I have to, I have to just continue doing what I'm doing, knowing that it will eventually work, but not as well as if, if I just change course a little bit, but I'm unwilling to change course because I said that I was on the right course. That's why like to avoid that feeling is one of the reasons why I've shaped the language that I use and the way that I explain things to be really, you know, frame things around the idea of with the information that I have at this time, right? And with what the dog is showing me in this moment and with the outcomes that you have explained to me, this is the course of action. And at any minute, like the, any one of those three ingredients could change, I could observe something new in the dog. You could change what, you know, you could be more honest, say what you really want with the dog. I don't want him to be an inside dog anymore. Or, you know, like a lot of the times the big one is, you know, with pet dog owners that realize, you know, I don't actually want this dog. This was, this is not the dog that I wanted. And that's how, you, you know, I was able to move on a lot of working dogs and take them from people who didn't you know, want a working dog, that kind of stuff. But when you frame things like that and you're like, Hey, in, in light of new information, we can totally change. I feel like for me, that's how I develop the ability to avoid that really uncomfortable feeling or that ego driven, like, Oh, this is how we're doing it. And I don't want new information. I don't want to see, I don't want to bring anyone else in. I don't want to involve other people. They might change the way that I do things and I haven't left any space. Right. So I think that's something that I've developed over the last few years and I'm pretty proud of, like I, I try really hard at that. I put a lot of fucking work into that to try and leave space for that. But all that said, I still do have that feeling sometimes when someone change it, see something you don't or outperforms you and you're like, oh, I'm glad you're doing that. But I also feel uncomfortable that you are, right? I think that's just unavoidable. I think that's probably, you know, part of human nature. You know, it's nice that you can talk about it though, in a way that touching on the word vulnerability, because it does take a fair degree of vulnerability to be able to identify that, bring it up in a public space and then talk about it. Because there's plenty of people that I know that just couldn't come to terms with that. You know, like even if you brought it up to them, even if it was a stark reality, they'd probably look at you and go, no, that's not right. That's not what it is. When it's exactly what it is. Yeah. The other term that you used before, which I think is important to unpack a little, is the term flip-flop. Because sometimes I think it's very important to flip-flop on ideas. Look, it's a derogatory term. I, I know it means that, you know, like you can't make a decision and stick to it. If we probably change the concept of flip-flop to being progressive, I think that's probably a better way to look at it. When I'm talking about being progressive, I'm saying that you can be steadfast on an idea and then realise this is not going the way it should go, the way I thought it would go, the way that I played it out in my head. I really need to change to something else. And that could be looking at flip-flopping. People could say, oh, well, you know, now you're just flip-flopping on ideas. But 
I think some of the best trainers that I've ever seen, we're not just talking dogs, we're talking industries, people that are innovative. You know, they think on the go and they can change on the go. They can change readily and rapidly. They're impressive people because they're not, like I said, they're not steadfast. They're not stuck. They're not, you know, like they're not thinking, well, this is my system. The more I get involved in the world, the more I don't really like that word where people are saying, this is my system because it's not your system. It's a, well, it could be. <laughs> it could be your system. But there are a lot of things that we borrow from other people. And I mean, they're almost identical with a little bit of interpretation on how you would do it differently or how you might explain it better. And that's nice. It's lovely. And I think that that's how it should be. You know, we've all done that. We've all borrowed other people's work. We've all changed the explanation slightly to make it sound better to us or even better to the, the client at the other end. But I do think that sometimes being that progressive person is very important to developing a better outcome overall. Yeah. A little while ago, it was a couple of months ago, I was the third wheel in a fight. Well, it wasn't a fight. It was a conversation. It was between two friends. It wasn't a dog related. It was a political thing. And they hit me up like I was going to be the decision maker, right? Like I was the third person there. They're like, what do you think? And I was like, oh, look, I don't really give a shit. And they're like, stop being such a fence sitter. And I said at the time, and I was like, I realized as I was saying it, I was like, this is good. I have to remember this. It's like, you know, I don't have a strong enough opinion on this that I wouldn't change it in the face of new information. I was like, so I really, there's no point in, I, I'm not very well researched on it. I have a feeling, but that's just how I feel about it. It's not an educated opinion and I don't care about it enough to not change my mind if you gave me some new information. So I really, my opinion's relevant. And they both looked at me like, you fence sitting piece of shit. <laughs> I was like, but I thought to myself, I was like, no, I'm proud of myself for holding that opinion. I was like, you know, because I don't know anything about this. I'm not educated on it and I have feelings about it, but those feelings could be really wrong because I might have bad information. And I think that's one of the things that we sometimes see in our industries, people can have strong feelings about something, right? They can be like, you know, this is really strongly how I feel about it. Like this is, and it's like, yeah, I get that. But the data that is driving those feelings is incorrect or incomplete or something like, you know, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I think that we as an industry, and again, it's something that I try really hard to do, uh, is don't get too attached to those opinions that are made on incomplete data. And then also kind of that then sort of triggers for me, the idea of keeping rattling around in the back of my head. Maybe all of my data is incomplete, right? Like, like maybe I don't know as much as I think I know that Dunning-Kruger effects a funny thing, right? So everybody that hears about that, there's two kinds of people in that Dunning-Kruger, right? There's the low intelligence people that are overly confident and think they're killing it because they don't understand there's so much they don't know. But nobody thinks they're that person. Nobody thinks they're that person, right? Everybody thinks that they're the other type of person in the Dunning-Kruger <laughs> effect that is like, oh, no, I'm actually the expert and I I constantly, like I know everything. I'm very, oh, not everything, I'm very exceptionally good at this, except I suffer from feelings of inadequacy sometimes because I know that there's things that I don't know because I'm, I, I know so much. I'm so good at it. I know so much that 
I know there's things I don't know. Everybody thinks they're that person. Nobody, not one single person ever goes, no, I'm the guy that knows fuck all, but has super confidence because they can't know they're that person. Right. So that's a concern for me too. <laughs> maybe, maybe when you think, oh yeah, I've seen that guy, right? Like I've seen, you know, we can all think of the dog trainer that's watched the season Milan box set on DVD and it goes, right, I'm a dog trainer now. Right. And out I go into the world. I've watched season Milan do stuff. I'm going to start charging people. And we look at him and go, oh, fucking Dunning-Kruger knows next to nothing, but is out there charging $800 a session and is doing so with such confidence. And we go, oh, he's got the Dunning-Kruger. He's at the bottom end. I'm at the top end. I know so much. But then almost certainly there's someone looking at us going, look at this guy with the Dunning-Kruger. <laughs> he <laughs> thinks he knows everything, actually knows nothing. right? And I think that, like, you know, the goal is to keep climbing that all the way up until you really are the person that is the opposite end of the Dunning-Kruger, right? But I don't know that there's any way to really know whether you're ever, ever really there. Listening to you telling that story, it reminds me of Negan in The Walking Dead. When he's captured, he's in a cell. It's later on in the series, so I hope I haven't ruined it for anybody who was going to get into it. But Negan says, you always think you're the good guy, but in other people's stories, you're the bad guy. It's, mm. it's often the case in situations like that where you're talking about your investment into – uh, the Dunning-Kruger in effect and whether or not you're actually in part of that structure. You're right. You're exactly right. I mean, I've heard people explaining things before and they're talking with such confidence and they're talking with years of experience and you just think, hang on a sec, at some stage in this story, you've gone off tangent. You're wrong. It's no longer relevant anymore. But trying to convince this person of it, they're saying, no, no, that's not right. If you look at the evidence. But I think one of the most outstanding attributes that most of us can agree on is that only until you can actually physically see it, like the manifestation of the theory, once you can physically see it, then you know what's right or wrong. What throws a shadow to somebody is is throwing light to somebody else. So that's also difficult mm. in itself. But I generally, these days I like to see fact represented in something tangible, something that's you know, that that's viewable, that you can actually see the fruits of the labor, so to speak. Yeah. And I think that's one of the beauties that we do have, although it is difficult again in our industry is that, you know, for the most part, we can be evidence driven. And in the competition sports space, we absolutely are that. You go on the field and you perform and we all get to see how you go. And you can make big claims about your ability to train and, you know, how good you are and what your dog is like and whatever. That's fine. You can say all that. But in competition, we get to see, right? Mm. And I think that is not so much in the pet dog training space because it's very subjective. A lot of dog trainers can't even agree on dog body language. What fearful looks like, what anxious looks like, what excited looks like, you know, arousal. I hear a lot of dog trainers say for dogs wagging its tail, guarantee like that's a happy dog. And I'm like, uh, let me show you this video I have on my phone of a dog being eaten by a mountain lion, right? And its tail's wagging furiously the whole time, mm -hmm. right? So it's like that tail wag is arousal and excitement, but that can be terrified as well, you know, like that, that it's a, it's not always the obvious thing. So I think that's the tricky part is that where there is an objective standard, we can say, oh, well, you were wrong and you need to up your game. We, we saw you failed the test. But outside of that, there is no objective standard and the standards of success is can be so different to different people. And a dog that's constantly living under management is in some people's eyes, extremely successful. 
right? Like if, you know, a dog that say it jumps on people all the time or whatever, and if you can call it back successfully and not have it jump on people, fine. Like that's great. Like you, if you're happy with that, that's success for you. But to some people, the fact that that's constant management, constant intervention, then that is not having solved the problem, right? Mm. But there isn't a right or wrong in that. Nobody is correct because we haven't agreed. There's nowhere where you can look up and say, when this problem presents, it is fixed when this happens, right? Everybody has their own idea on how a dog should act when it's not under command and, and how it should interact with other people and, and all those sorts of things. And like, I'm guilty of that, right? So when Valerie sees someone she likes, she puts her feet on it. She lifts her feet up. That's what she likes to do. And I let her, I don't care. Right. But I don't let Remy do that. Again, it's one of those things of like objective standards, right? Because there's no measure on what's a pet dog meant to do. When someone comes into your home, what is the correct behavior that your dog should do to that person? There is no correct answer to that. Everybody has a different thing that they feel is appropriate. And like I say, even with my dogs, I know you're the same, right? Like from one dog, I expect one thing. And from another, I expect another thing. And it's just because, you know, the size and the nature of the dog and how people will perceive it and, you know, how you want to live with that particular dog. There's all these sort of things that go into it. So it's tricky. It's a tricky space that we inhabit in this dog space. It's an industry with a lot of strong opinions and even some very strong opinions that can be in conflict with each other. So long as they remain within their separate systems can both be very right at the same time, which I think makes it very hard to then have conversations about method and technique and speak with any definitive answers about any of them, I think. You said so much there that I absolutely agree with. One of the trigger points that I was thinking about just towards the end there when you started talking about people's pet dogs versus their working dogs, I think throughout history, from most of the people that I've visited, whether it be here or internationally and just traveling around the country and seeing people that are involved in different things, hard people with hard dogs, it's remarkable that their little house pet, their house dog, has none of the same attributes and largely is untrained and does very, very little. Yeah. You know, like they've, they've got tricks and skills and so forth, but when you go in there, it's like watching a clown act of this person bumbling around the place, fumbling and jumbling with this little dog, you know, leaping and running and, and being cheeky and being naughty. But this person is encouraging it and having fun with it, whereas with their working dog, there yeah. is a complete different set of standards. For good, bad or indifferent, it works. The whole relationship works. The working dog understands that lifestyle and expects it and benefits from it. And I think the house dog understands that lifestyle, expects it and benefits from it. So there is no lose-lose situation there because each dog has a world where it understands it. It makes complete sense to them. It, It makes sense to the handler or owner or whatever you want to call yourself because it's established. It is what it is. Randy behaves differently. When he comes inside, he just goes absolutely manic and he can't settle down when he's inside. Where he's outside, he'll settle down. He seems to be more in in line in that domain. The French Bulldogs, they're all crazy potatoes. They're just running around occupying space. But for Norel and I, that's fine. We're happy with that. It doesn't matter. They just do what they do. They're all good and we're happy just enjoying their, their company. Remarkably, that's what I see with a lot of other people too. They have this little inside dog and its behavior is reprehensible, but it's fun. It seems to be fun. It seems to be part of the enjoyment of having that little inside dog as well is that you've got this little scallywag that just does all these quirky little behaviors that you kind of, it's, I don't know, sometimes for me, it's just kind of relief. Yeah. I think you get that with working dogs as well. Like some of the 
you know, most elite trainers in the world. We're doing Skype sessions. We, we, you know, like we're like this, going to do an interview with them and their dogs bark in the background. You can hear them say, I shut the fuck up. And then the dog comes <laughs> running over and jumps in the lap and, and they like, I'd uh, like, you know, give the dog a piece of food off their table just to get rid of it for a moment. And we're talking some of the best trainers in the world mm. that we've had on the podcast that have done that to us right in front of us. And I do the same. I've seen you do the same with mm. your dogs. Like I think that some people have this idea in their mind that there's this rigidity and no fun with the dogs, right? And I think for the most part, that's largely untrue. And exactly as you say, even the people that have dogs that live in a kennel because, you know, they're, they're not appropriate to be in the house, whatever. Most of those trainers will then have a dog that they can be like that in the house with. If they can't have their working dog in the house to be like that, they'll often have another dog that they can just coexist with and not have to be on top of all the time, right? Like, like, cause that's certainly one of the things I don't want that for my dogs. That's one of the reasons why like my dogs have so much freedom in the house. And I'm so happy to have that is because I don't want to have to control my dogs all the time. And I mm. want, you know, and that sometimes means that they're pains in the ass. And that sometimes mean that they bark at the door when it, it's inappropriate to, and sometimes means that they just decide like they misread the play. One of the things when I do Skype sessions, I'm talking to people, Remy's usually asleep at my feet and he's figured out my tone for when I'm wrapping up a session, right? He can tell when I'm finishing a session. Yep. Cool. Got that. All right. See you next time. Thanks. See you. Bye. And he'll start, he'll jump up and look at me like, what are we going to do? Right. And sometimes I have sessions back to back, like where there is no time if I go over time. So I then have to hang up and I start and I have to say to him, Hey man, I don't have time. Like I'm not even going downstairs to get a drink, whatever. I'm straight into the next session. And you can see, so when the next session starts, there's this malinois in my lap panting in my face, like, Hey, this is the normal thing. And people, <laughs> and then I have to say to people like, Oh, hang on. I got to deal with this dog. And they're like, okay. And then the, it's a new person. Okay, what would you like to work on? Oh, I can't get my dog out of my lap and he harasses me while I'm working. <laughs> like, oh, you mean like mine was right there? Right? <laughs> like, oh, I just lost all my credibility. Oh, well, this, that's who we are. You're exactly right, you know, with what you were just saying, especially after having such a heavy conversation about punishment. Like when you start talking about the concepts of punishment and the use of punishment and people listening to that, they summarize you based on that conversation sometimes. Like they think, oh, this must be a very miserable lifestyle that your dog has because you're using or implementing the uses of punishment. However, that's a misrepresentation of what we're actually talking about. Sometimes it can be, like I'm saying, with these little house dogs that you've got and even your working dogs, it's all part of the plan and all part of the strategy that brings this cohesiveness together of enjoying, well, being able to enjoy the dog's company for the application and tasks that it's been designed for and structured for. When that's completely limited with some of these little house pets that you've got, when there is like a very much a limitation on structure and design through the implementation of punishment, it can be different. That wasn't the only point I want to bring up. There was something that you brought up a while ago. I don't want to prolong this and open up a massive can of worms. It was words to the effect of, it wasn't exactly, so if you feel that I'm doing it in injustice, you can interrupt me. But you were talking about when people use tools or when they use punishment, and this has played heavily on me, and I've thought about when you said this, it was actually quite significant. And you said sometimes when people use these tools or use these types of punishment, you're concerned about that because they're inapt ability to use it as it should be used, the entire preparation of it, we have concerns around them because now you're thinking about somebody who doesn't like it, who wouldn't use it well, and if they attempted to do it, they'd do such a poor job of it. 
that the injustice and the sufferance that the dog would be subjected to would be terrible because they don't want to embrace it or use it correctly. They're annoyed by it and ashamed by it that sometimes it's almost like they sabotage the true effect of how it's supposed to work sometimes. Yeah, you do get that. I think especially for the most part in any like poor use of tools, and and I know we touched on this already, but it's that if you don't use punishment correctly, you end up using negative reinforcement to activate the very Mm. behavior you were trying to stop, right? And then that's where people then can become really anti it especially with household behaviors. You know, the dog's got a desire to do something. You give him a couple of pops. He doesn't stop. You're not prepared to go any higher with that level of positive punishment. It hasn't changed the dog's behavior. The dog continues doing it. Now that what you intended to be punishment via some kind of tool becomes negative reinforcement as an activator of that behavior and it strengthens the behavior and the dog can overcome it, makes it more of a challenge and the dog enjoys doing it. And that's when you often then hear people say, you know, punishment doesn't work and creates side effects and all the things that you hear and it's usually that way. And it's because, you know, you didn't commit to it. You didn't really want it to work. You weren't prepared to do it. So you shouldn't have started. You should have found an alternate technique. You should have, you know, gone down a different path altogether because that kind of half-hearted approach to it is the opposite of what was needed. And it's not punishment. It's reinforcement. A lot of the times the people that then become anti it, you hear that saying a lot that punishment is reinforcing to the punisher. And I think what gets left out of that conversation is that it, it's that that can be really true. Punishing your dog can be highly reinforcing to the human that is punishing the dog. But I think we forget to mention that that reinforcement is negative reinforcement, mm-hmm. right? So like it's because the dog is doing something that is agitating and is aversive to the person and it's only reinforcing to the person to punish the dog because it stops the behavior. And that behavior is negative reinforcement that drives the person to do the punishment, right? That's kind of a complex thing to understand. But when you look at it through that lens, that's where early intervention is so important. And it's this like, don't let it build up to the point exactly like we know of negative reinforcement, right? Like don't let it build up to the point where it is intolerable because then you know, the, the outcome of the, the behavior that turns it off may not be what you're expecting. And I think that probably feeds into what you're saying there. Mm. And I think that it's a difficult conversation to have with some people and people who want to avoid that punishment end up being some of the worst punishers there are because they leave it so long before they eventually do it. And they're ashamed of themselves and they do it and they know they shouldn't have done it and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, it's tricky. When I've heard that phrase touted around punishment is reinforcement to the punisher, I only really believe that's through frustration. Like if you're frustrated um, and then you're, then you're being, you're reinforcing punishing the dog. Once again, you're truly not using effective uses of punishment. You're at the hands of losing control of the situation and finding some way that you need to reinforce that feeling of like, I'm frustrated now. I don't like the feeling. I need some sort of lightning rod. So I'm going to punish the dog. That kind of made me feel better. So, yeah, I can understand how Mm. that in that sort of situation, that would be reinforcing. But people who are very tactically proficient in the use of punishment, it's distressing that they know they have to use punishment sometimes, but they know that's the most effective and that's the cleanest source of solving the problem. I've had conversations with you. I've had conversations with other people. I've even had internal conversations with myself where I've seen a situation thinking, 
you know, the only way that I can resolve this situation now is through some form of punishment. This is conjuring several thoughts back into me. And it even comes from watching training sessions and so forth. Now, people have different view sets on this. We were just talking about this right at the start of the episode. And there's times where, you know, like I've watched you and Jazz do something and you've got your technique and system that you're working with. And it works when you're doing a system, it works. There are other times, and I'll give you an example of this. Like, let's say, for example, a dog has done something wrong in a situation where it might be a a high level arousal to a situation and the dog won't perform a skill that it knows how to do. Reaching back into the old days of training back at ADT, I remember in those sort of situations, there were times where we just wouldn't let the dog see the behavior through. There were times where we'd just practice complete negative punishment, take the dog out of the situation, saying you're not going to get to that next behavior because I feel that that would be too reinforcing for you and that you might stage this again at some event to try and get back there again. So we're not going to do it. You're going to totally lose. The amount of frustration, the amount of annoyance you could see like not only for the trainer who was trying to train it but also for the handler especially for the handler who had to put their dog away you know like coming all the way down the training center and the dog fucking a situation up where the dog does know how to do that but because you're raising the raising your arousal raising the stakes you know suddenly the dog is having a sticking point in the training there has to be some sort of punishment in place for the dog that for the dog to know that's not the correct choice. You can't go back through that and you can't go through that and then just get reinforced as compensation for suddenly doing that. Some people have said, why not? Why can't you do that? Because it's worked for me. Well, if it does work and you do get through that clean and you don't have any of the residual attaching to it of the old behavior and then the risk of a form of superstition or a belief that in order to get this sometimes I have to do the unwanted behavior I'll risk it for a low level punisher and then I'll go back and get reinforced later on with the correct source of behavior whereas sometimes and you and I we played in this in the punishment episode but sometimes that pure source of negative punishment like taking the dog away from the behavior altogether and saying it's all over completely you had a shot at it, you fouled it, you're not going to get it. You have to think about this to be clear on the principles of what the behavior consists of. You can't get to the end result without having a proper timeout. And I don't mean like a five-second timeout and then get to do the behavior like you're going to go away and you're not coming back until you do it properly. I remember being a part of that. I remember clearly when Harley was going through a sticking point in training and I fucking hated it because it was punishment for me as well. You know, like it was embarrassing Mm. and I felt really conflicted about the whole situation. I was frustrated. I was angry. I was disappointed, but fuck me dead. Did it work? It took about, I think it took us about three weeks. And I remember going back to the training center in the second week after I've got the first proper timeout. And I went back to the training center in the second week. And then he did the same thing over again. And I, I nearly lost my shit, you know, like I was so angry But I remember I was speaking to the trainers about it and they said, mate, you have to see this through. You have to trust in the system because if we allow the dog to do this, then he'll establish a network where he believes that I can just get through this, which is negatively reinforcing. I can just get through this and then I can get reinforced. So then you attach something completely unwanted, which can surface at any fucking time. And it usually does at the worst possible time. But because Harley wanted to do this so badly and because he was at the receiving end of these negative punishes, that was basically like the proper type of lightning rod for this. Behaviour completely dissipated and he went from, I think in the third week, he finally had a breakthrough 
where he didn't do the unwanted behavior at all. He attempted to, he corrected himself, and then he was rewarded off that because he attempted to do the behavior, cut himself completely short of it, and then went into a corrective behavior on his own because he thought, hang on, the last couple of times, and you can see true cognition in the dogs when you see this sort of evolution take place, which is just beautiful. And through good timing, good judgment from the trainers at the time, I think it was Boyd, I can't remember, he said, now we're going to reward the dog because he went to do it, shut himself down. Now we're going to reward the dog for cognitively thinking about the situation. You know, that's a son of a bitch when you're going through that. But I think it's really important sometimes to think to yourself, we're just seeing the same practices happening at training sometimes. Sometimes I think we've got to try something completely out of the box. And it's not a popular outcome, but for me at that time and for other people that I've worked with, it has worked. It's disappointing. It's time and it's time that people don't want to commit to it sometimes because let's face it, we're all in there. um, Well, not all of us, but there's a regular amount of people who are in it for instant gratification. They want something right there, right now. They want to see something for their time and money. I know we're sort of opening the punishment can of worms (laughs) and we, what we meant to talk about was outside influence on training, but I think I can hit both of those and probably we'll look to wrap it up after, but that negative punishment piece, taking the dog away from the session, one of the oppositions we have against that, and let's paint a really specific scenario, right? We don't have to talk in general, but like, let's paint a really specific scenario where say it's bite work and you're trying to get the dog to take a toy reinforcer in the presence of the decoy, right? Or do a behavior that is away from the decoy in the presence of the decoy while he wants that bite. And the idea that you, you know, you're off of the dog, the toy and he doesn't want it because he's going to take the decoy. And in that case, he gets neither. Right. So that's negative punishment. We say, well, you know, like I've offered you this, you don't want it. So you're not getting that one. We're going to take you away. We're going to put you away in the car. And exactly as you say, like, that's certainly one of the situations where that's definitely not reinforcing for their handler. Right. Mm. Like that's when people talk about punishment being reinforcing the handler. When I try and convince people to do that, it's a fucking hard thing to convince, especially when they drove two hours to get there. Right. And they're not going to get another shot at mm-hmm. it for another week. And they're like, no, there has to be another way. And of course there is another way, right? And prior to learning to do this properly and having the right mentors that taught me, because I was from a, like I I started out with my initial imprinting and education was by the no tools community, was that you control this sense, you control arousal, you do all those sorts of things, right? So what you do is, you know, the decoy is agitating too much. And so you you go further away from him to the point where the dog can take the toy. And that's something that I would do for sure, even now, right? Like I want to absolutely have that. And if you slowly incrementally bring it in and teach it to the point where the dog doesn't go over threshold and can continue to do that low arousal, you know, least like you're pre-macking it there at that point, like the, the less likely behavior leading to the more likely behavior, it'll work, right? And this is where the people who, who are saying like, you know, you don't need to use any punishment. In fact, you shouldn't because the other will work. That will work, but it gives a different outcome. It's mm. a different outcome. So like doing both is quite necessary to the point where I need my dog to not incrementally go towards a decoy only. I need him to be overwhelmed at times and learn to manage that being overwhelmed because it working incrementally towards it is showing that's keeping him sub threshold, right? And that will work so long as the dog is always sub threshold. And what you're relying on then is that in your training, you 
get the dog to remain sub threshold of becoming too overly fixated and not being able to take in, you know, what's going on. You're relying on your training, getting to the point where it, it's beyond what you'll face in trial. But in surprise scenario games, that doesn't exist, right? Like I need my dog to be able to cap himself. And in real world scenarios, I need the same. I need the dog to go like, I am going over threshold but I need to internalize this. I need to make a good decision. And I think that's where I think a lot of the people who contacted me during the week, and I know it feeds into this conversation because I was the opposite. I was like, no, 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 no. I don't need to ever put my dog over threshold. In fact, I shouldn't. I should be coming in very incrementally and making sure that he stays below threshold. But there's two reasons I need to. First is it's going to happen because I'm going to do it by accident. All right. So like, it's going to happen to the point where if I, you know, in my very specific scenario where I'm teaching a dog to take the toy in the presence of the decoy at hundred meters, he can take it at 99 meters. He can take it. Well, like we get to the point where at 11 meters, he can take it. And at 11 and a half meters, he becomes fixated on the decoy. Like that happens, right? I make a mistake. I go too close and I lose a dog and he makes a bad decision. So now how do I deal with that situation? It's my fault. I acknowledge that, but I still am in that situation. I have to do something. But then the other, and this had to be drilled into me by some of my early mentors and certainly people who I still work with now is that you are not going to teach the dog to be able to keep himself in control. He's relying on you keeping him in control. If you only work that proximity distance control arousal, right? Take the dog further away. But then when it happens that the pressure is too much, it's a certain decoy or the pressure that they're putting on the dog, whatever. And you can apply this to whatever template you're thinking of. Like when you're thinking of a dog going over threshold, when it happens, the dog that has been kept sub threshold and never had punishment for doing the wrong thing when he's over threshold, won't be able to handle it. And he will cook off. And if that's the day of the race, whether it's a trial, you'll fail the trial, or if it's real life, you know, he does the wrong thing in that moment and you can no longer control the dog. So I think that's why, and I think that's what people kind of miss a little bit when we're saying, this is why we need to do that piece. We need that negative punishment piece to take the dog away from that. We're going to have a situation where the dog does the wrong thing and we're going to take him away from it and we're going to make him learn from that, that error. And in that moment, we use a non-reward marker or whatever. If you want to be successful and you want to hit the field where the dog where someone could potentially bring the dog over threshold and have the dog realize and go nut, like I am going to internalize this. It's going to build power in the dog and then, you know, explode out when you ask for a command and that's where the dog's going to release that energy to do the opposite and only do that is failing the dog and it's failing yourself. And I think that's, maybe we didn't do a good enough job explaining that last week, but that's something that I had to be convinced of, man. Like I, I wanted that not to be true. I really wanted that not to be true. I wanted to just think, no, I work proximity and distance and I keep my dog under threshold. And I, I wanted that to be the case because I'd been very successful with that in the, in the past, but not as successful as I am because now when the dog does get presented with a situation where he is over threshold, he can now, he doesn't go over threshold. He knows how to manage that and he doesn't blow off. He can keeps himself under control because he's motivated by the avoidance of punishment, not just by the positive reinforcement that will come of the behavior, which is too overwhelming in that moment. I think that makes sense. Well, it does to me. My thoughts on that is often the best outcomes are the incorporations of multiple ideas rather than being singular. Yeah. You know, and that that's yeah. a a good descriptor that you were just talking about before, because I've never, let me rephrase. I think it's important that I rephrase here. Not never. 
as I've become wiser and I've become more in contact with other points of view and seeing it factually for myself, like seeing true to life examples of dogs performing certain types of behaviors. And it's definitely not concluded. So the only time that's been revealed to me is by watching the same dog working with multiple outcomes in punishes when certain applications have required a way of doing it. And then there have to be other considerations because what's working on the day seems to be failing for some other reason. It could be that a new decoy walked into the environment and the dog has become very comfortable with one way of doing it with one decoy. Whereas once this new decoy walks in, suddenly the dog's fixation changes and then the dog is back in a belief or a, a fixated pattern of thinking. Now I'm allowed to do this because this new decoy is coming in here. So it may mean that you can simply apply the same strategy and principle that you were using before, or it could mean that the arousal is so high with this new decoy that then you need to be considerate. And this is where you do become a true-to-life tactician of using multiple practices and disciplines where you can think to yourself, we've tried this one way, it's just not working, I need to be considerate of another option. And if you don't have those options, then those limitations can affect you And it will affect you when you get to a trial field and your dog just starts fucking up and it won't give you the desired outcomes that you believe that you're entitled to through your training practices. And then you have to start rethinking Mm. the strategy altogether and thinking, well, this should work. It's been working when I've been doing this in my yard or my training field with my decoys and so forth. Why isn't it working with this trial decoy? They're doing the same thing. They're presenting the same picture. But I've often related this myself, and I think I might have used an example before. There are times where I've had amateur boxing rounds and so forth. Every person that you get in the ring with, some people you can be menacing and intimidating to them, and other people have that effect on you. It just might be a look. It might be the swag that the person comes in. There's something about them that changes the scenario entirely different, and you have a different outlook on how you're going to come up with your next strategy if you've got one at all at that point in time. Sometimes everything goes completely out the window. Having been in those sort of situations before through controlled combat and so forth, sometimes I can think of it in the dog's point of view. Like I can actually think – my dog is having an off moment with this decoy because they're presenting differently. They're bigger. They're more intense. They move differently. There is something about them, even though that it's very, very similar and the situation and the picture is very much like the like, there's something different about it. So if I haven't considered all those variables when we're going in there, there's going to be a problem. For example, I know that Randy likes because he's known you for such a long period of time. He likes his skirmishes with you. He enjoys that but you introduce Jazz in the situation or Scott Ward when he was doing decoying or even Sean came over and was doing some guest decoying and so forth. It presents a completely different scenario for the dog sometimes. And you might think you might have a situation where you're getting beautiful outs. The routine is just going spectacular. Like you've presented the dog with three different decoys and you're thinking, you know, now I've achieved generalization. You haven't really. You've achieved generalization on the day with these decoys, but when that new decoy presents itself, himself or herself in the situation or a new ground, or there might be multiple reasons why this has happened, but sometimes it just goes out the window and there has to be some flexibility and preparation that you can think to yourself, well, I need to be more considerate about multiple different outcomes here. Yeah, I get it. Oh dear, we hit the punishment again. But hey, what I wanted to get across was that the importance of that someone from the outside looking in 
I like having that done to us, even though it can be uncomfortable. I'm excited about the prospect of the world opening up at some point and some people coming in to observe our training and that sort of thing. Mm. Anyway. That's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. A couple of bucks a month gets you new episodes. Or, uh, sorry, a couple of bucks a month gets you other episodes. With a backlog, there's years of uh information in there as well as more narrative and story stuff and educational stuff going forward there's live streams once a month and you know who knows what else we put all kinds of stuff in there another way to support the show is teespring get yourself some cool merch you can rep the canine paradigm brand you can look cool while you're doing it we could probably get like our faces on your underpants if that's something you're into um <laughs> If you, unless you're like Jason Furman and puts in, our faces on his bum hole. Yeah, I was going to say, our faces inside your underpants if you're Jason <laughs> Furman, but uh, that's a, another problem. If you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is jump into the discussion group. There's loads of conversations that happen in there. You can discuss what's going on with the show. Be kind to everybody in there. But if you want to talk to us uh, directly, the best way is to either get in contact with us individually via our own, you know, whatevers, or you can shoot us both an email. We are info at the canine paradigm. That's it. Goodbye.